Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, our website, and our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On the night of June 15th to 16th, fighting broke out between Chinese and Indian troops stationed near the line of actual control in the vicinity of the Galwan River, high in the mountainous region where the Himalayas, the Karakor Mountains, and the Hindu Kush all kind of smashed together. Uh, the events of that night, the broader Sino-Indian border dispute, the larger political implications are all as complex as the topography in that area is. Uh, we've already seen it spill over into the popular social media space in both countries. And earlier this week, India actually banned all Chinese apps, including the wildly popular TikTok. Fortunately, today we have with us an old friend of the show to help us sort through it all. Anath Krishnan was for many years a correspondent in Beijing with the Hindu. He later moved to India today, but is back now in New Delhi writing for the Hindu and providing some of the best coverage of this complex issue. Anath, last time I saw you, we were drinking excellent single malt whiskey in a bar in Beijing and saying goodbye. Uh, well, I am very glad to have reconnected, at least by video, and uh, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you so much, guys. I have fond memories of that night in Beijing, as well as uh, previous recordings in your Beijing studio. So really good to see you again. Yeah, it's it's wonderful, and I hope you're you're well. How how are things in Delhi during the uh, the the coronavirus epidemic? So I'm currently uh, actually in Chennai uh, in the south, which oh, is my okay. hometown. And Chennai and Delhi are the two I think worst off cities in India. We're getting about. 2,000 new cases a day. So I think we have another month or two before we get over the worst phase of this. Well, gosh, well, I hope uh, things are, are better over there. I mean, it's not so great here either. As you know, uh, all across the American South and Southwest, there's been a surge in cases and my state hasn't been spared, alas. But uh, we're all being very careful. Anyway, enough. Uh, before we dive in, uh, catch us up a bit on what you've been doing since you left China. Uh, and that was... Not, not long after I left, right? It was 2017, was it? Right. So I left in uh, 2018. And uh, uh, I think in the summer of 2018, and I spent uh, a year away from journalism with Brookings, uh, with the India Center. So I spent a year looking, doing a project on India-China economic relations and looking at Chinese uh. investments in India, including uh, companies like TikTok, uh, which was published in March. And I spent three months in Hong Kong after that in the end of 2019, which was an unbelievable time to be in Hong Kong, uh, as yeah. a visiting fellow at Hong Kong University. Uh, and this was towards the end of 2019. And I'm back in journalism now, and I'm actually supposed to be headed back to Beijing soon. So to continue reporting for the Hindu from Beijing, but we're still waiting for visas and flights to resume. So hopefully that should happen soon. Uh, that's fantastic. I'm sure your wife is pretty eager to get back there. Yep, I think so. So am I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish I could be back there. Uh, I mean, it's a whole lot safer there right now. <laughs> well, in some senses. Anyway, uh, let's let's start in on, on on the topic for the day, and let's begin with what exactly happened at the border. How how does a military skirmish between Two very well-armed countries, both armed, you know, with nuclear weapons. How does it break out with sticks and stones and no gunfire? Well, Kaiser, um, in a strange way, the fact that it ended up being this medieval clash, uh, apparently the Chinese PLA came in with uh, sticks with barbed wire wrapped around it uh, and, and stones and rods and, and things like that. In a way, it kind of shows that some of the mechanisms, at least, that India and China have put in place to avoid firing 
work. Uh, if firearms were involved, I think there would have been hundreds of casualties on both sides. We know that India lost 20 soldiers on June 15th. China lost soldiers as well, but they haven't yet said how many. Uh, so in one strange way, the fact that it was this kind of medieval fight reflects the fact that they've managed to avoid firing since 1975. Uh, though in terms mm. of casualties, this is the worst violence since 1967. Um, I think beyond that, Kaiser, uh, I was shocked to, by by the news that there was loss of life only because it hasn't happened in this on this scale since 53 years. But I think there were signs that what we've been seeing on the line of actual control uh, throughout May is something that's really unusual and not not the usual standoffs we've seen between India and China, which kind of happen every year in the spring and summers when the ice melts and soldiers can right. resume patrolling. I think there were signs that this was something very, very different. Uh, and I think we're still in the middle of this very uncertain phase in the relationship. And as far as I'm concerned, Kaiser, I think that uh, we are probably, this is probably the worst phase of India-China relations since the normalization of ties since 1988. I think it's a very, very worrying time for the relationship. Yeah, I would, I would certainly agree. I can't think of a period that's gotten uh, worse than this. I'm wondering how much context we need for this. When the melee took place, we saw a lot of media outlets, especially here in the U.S., immediately run sort of explainer pieces that looked at, at the historical context at the McMahon line, the 62 war, explaining, you know, the, the Western and Eastern uh, border disputes, uh, Aksai Chin and Arunachal Pradesh or South Tibet. Uh, they looked at earlier incidents on the border, including the standoff three years ago and hundreds of miles to the southeast on the Doklam Plateau. Uh, what for you, where do we really need to begin though? What's the really important context for this that, that I think uh, most people should have available to them? Right. So I think, uh, as you rightly said, I've, I've seen like a, a flood of pieces come out about the territorial claims and the like. And I think that kind of uh, confuses the issue. Uh, this isn't actually about territorial claims. I think the most important context that we need is to understand what is the line of actual control. Uh, and the line of mm -hmm. actual control is what uh, differentiates territory held by India uh, and territory that's held by China. Uh, so for the most part uh, in the West, it kind of corresponds with the border as China sees it. Uh, and in the East, it corresponds with the border as India sees it. Uh, and there are basically just about 23 points along the LAC where India and China don't actually agree on where the line runs. So actually, for the most part, they do know where the LAC is. And uh, what was new about the current standoff is, in the past, both India and China have had an arrangement since their first border agreement in 1993 that they recognize there are differing perceptions of the LAC. And so they came up mm -hmm. with four uh, very comprehensive agreements to ensure that peace is still maintained, even though there were differing perceptions. And the key to that is that each side could patrol up to its perception of the LAC, but in these overlapping gray zones, these 23 gray zones, what they would do is when they encounter patrols, they would not engage the patrol. Uh, they would go back to base. Uh, they would show banners and they, there wouldn't be any confrontation. And there, there are a lot of guidelines that kind of detail how patrols should behave in these gray zones. So what India has seen uh, since May is in multiple pockets of the LAC, uh, they are, what Indian officials have said is they're looking at completely new Chinese behavior at the LAC, which is to enforce their on-the-ground presence in these gray zones, which is, mm. which is pretty much tearing up four agreements uh, that both sides have since 1993, which is why... India and China seem to be in very new terrain right now. And if I could just briefly uh, tell you about Galwan Valley, which is where the clash happened on June 15th. The yeah, I think the geography has a lot of people confused and exactly. it's, it's kind of hard to get around. Yeah, please, Galwan so, Valley. So, yeah, so the interesting thing about Galwan Valley is it's not one of those 23 pockets on the LAC. So until April, both India and China had an agreed upon line that both were respecting in Galwan Valley. And this line actually corresponds with the line that you see on Chinese maps, including on Baidu maps and whatever Chinese maps that you see. So mm -hmm. 
The fact is that it seems that since May, uh, China has now been saying that it claims the entire Galwan Valley. But the puzzling thing for me is, even when I look at Chinese maps, they just show most of the Galwan Valley as part of China, but not the western tip of the Galwan River, where it meets another river on India's side. So, so it seems to be that China is now not only exerting its presence in these disputed pockets, but also making a new claim. So I think from that perspective, I find it very difficult to see how they're going to resolve the situation. And as you and I speak, there are thousands of troops still eyeball to eyeball in many spots along the LAC and Chinese troops present in at least three or four pockets of what India sees as Indian territory at this very moment. I see. How much of China's actions here uh, are, as some analysts have suggested, in response to the 2019 decision to transform Ladakh into a union territory that's directly governed by New Delhi. Uh, I mean, can you, I don't understand why that would necessarily be threatening to China. Kaiser, I'm in the same bo- boat as you on this one. Okay. <laughs> uh, only because um, I think that, honestly, to me, it sounds like a post facto justification for this, what was clearly a planned attempt by China to better enforce its claims on the LAC perhaps making the most of India uh, being vulnerable in the middle of the pandemic and maybe other reasons. I think that if China really was as incensed about the reorganization of Jammu and Kashmir uh, as it's now being made out to be, I think we've forgotten that a month after that happened, President Xi flew to Chennai, where I'm sitting right now, uh, Mm -hmm. spent three days in Chennai uh, with Prime Minister Modi, both kind of waxed eloquent about the future of the relationship. And it was a huge moment in, in India-China relations when this summit happened in Chennai in October 2019, after the reorganization. So I think that that's a very strong argument for why I, I don't think that's the cause for what's happening on the boundary, though I think it presented Chinese analysts a, a, a good reason to kind of justify these actions on the LAC as far as I see it. And as you just to had on the reorganization, it did not change India's external boundaries with China. It was an internal reorganization of states. Though, of course, the map that was issued, just like the previous Jammu Kashmir map, showed Aksai Chin as a part of India. So that hasn't changed. So in that sense, of course, there is, I guess, there is reason for China to object, which they did object. Uh, But is there reason for them to launch a full-scale press along the LAC? I think that that doesn't really sound right to me. So Xi, in October, when he met with Modi, didn't raise Jammu and Kashmir at all. He didn't bring that, that issue up? So from the from what I heard from Indian officials and what I could make out from Chinese MFA readouts was China was extremely upset when the reorganization happened in August. And what happened after that was India's foreign minister flew all the way to Beijing just to kind of assuage them about the reorganization. I think mm-hmm. uh, China did raise it at the UN most likely at Pakistan's behest, but didn't raise it in a wholehearted way in the sense that they were closed-door discussions, which really don't amount to much. Uh, but I think that as far as I understood, during the October summit, it did not come up. She did not bring it up in any big way with Modi or express China's anger at the reorganization, though I think they spoke broadly about the need for India-Pakistan relations to improve which is something that China has been saying a lot, but it didn't figure directly when they met. And to me, it seemed that the October summit ended very well. Uh, There was very bullish talk of a new trade and investment forum that would be uh, headed by Hu Chunhua and India's commerce minister. And so I frankly did not see this coming when this happened in April and early May. My surmise, I mean, the only thing that I could think of was that maybe uh, the reorganization and the transformation of Ladakh into Union territory would mean a larger Indian troop presence in the triple border area. Is that a possibility? Is that something that China might have bristled at? I don't think from what I've read, there's been a change in deployments along the border post-reorganization. I think, frankly, the reorganization had to do more with uh, Modi and the BJP's politics on Kashmir. It was it was all about Kashmir and not about China. 
perhaps the case can be made that they didn't think through how China would react to it. But I don't think China was anywhere in their frame of reference or in their vision when they when they went through with this reorganization. And I don't think it has affected the military and mil- India's military posture in any way, since anyway, there were Indian troops in Ladakh before and after the reorganization. What hmm. uh, ha- has happened in April and happens every April is constructions resume by both sides along the LAC. And every year this does lead to standoffs, but they have found a way to deal with them. So for example, in Galwan Valley, from China's foreign ministry statements, it appears that Grouse was India building a bridge in the Galwan Valley, though this was on India's side of the LAC. So this seems to have triggered the Chinese response. But ordinarily, if China was upset about the bridge, they would have raised it in a border personnel meeting point, which happens regularly. And usually in the past, there's give and take, where maybe India would stop the construction for some time, or they would allow the Chinese to do something somewhere else. These things are quietly resolved at the local level. It's not something that's big enough to necessitate a full-fledged deployment of Chinese troops in four, five, six different points along the LAC, not just in Ladakh, but in Sikkim as well, which is one of the most peaceful spots on the LAC. So to see this multiple deployment over a road construction, which is what China has officially said was a trigger, again, it seems strange to me because in the past, such constructions have been quietly resolved by both sides using the mechanisms that they've built over so many years. Right, right. The road construction presumably would have allowed easier logistical support for troops there and also uh, easier transport of, of new troops into the into the region, presumably, right? They could have seen the roads and this bridge as maybe a shift in the local balance of power. That's exactly correct. And I think that part of the reason why we're seeing so many standoffs is India has been more aggressive in road constructions. Uh, and many of these... It's just because India has been building them over the last 10 years and they're coming to fruition now. China has already finished its constructions on its side of the LAC years in advance and it enjoys a huge advantage. So I think that part of the reason for the tensions we've seen this year and in previous years as well is China trying to preserve the advantage it has on the LAC and India is trying to reduce advantage. So it's just part of the dynamic that's fueling these new incidents. So I think that both sides were aware of this new dynamic, which was why they had these two big summits between Modi and Xi in Wuhan in April 2018, which was called uh, the Wuhan spirit, which now I don't know how that's going to play out. (laughs) Uh, And then they had the Chennai summit in 2019. And the idea was for both sides to have their militaries respect the agreements and deal with these new incidents in a very mature way. But obviously now that's just all collapsed. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, at least they didn't resort to guns. So, uh, I mean, maybe there is still some hope there. Um, let's talk about the broader context of Indian public sentiment toward China prior to the outbreak of hostilities. What was, you know, what was it like leading up to this? Was there an uptick in negative sentiment toward China, maybe because of the coronavirus or or anything like that? I think there was a little bit of um, sentiment because of the coronavirus. But I'd say that all of the things that you're reading about, the boycott campaigns, the statements by politicians, I think a lot of that was not because of the coronavirus at all, but because of the border clash. And I think that the... The deaths of 20 Indian soldiers is a turning point and a real trigger for a complete change in public opinion in India towards China. I think that was the real key. Uh, And I think that if you look at the coronavirus as well, of course, I think in India and the US, everywhere, there's been, for lack of a better word, there's been stupid racist stuff being written on social media. But frankly, I really don't know how much social media, I I think social media is not a great barometer of, of public opinion, frankly. Uh, Let's hope not, yeah. (laughs) And in India, for sure, I mean, the sentiments that I encounter from people uh, in day-to-day life is quite nothing to what I see about the Chinese virus and other such things written online. I think it's not really about COVID, but more about the violence on the border. I think it came as a shock to everyone because, frankly, we've looked at the China and Pakistan relationships in a very different way. With Pakistan, I mean, you know it's kind of your enemy number one adversary 
terror attacks keep happening. The firing keeps happening along the line of control with Pakistan. China, you know, is this big strategic challenge and threat, but it really hasn't had violence on the border. So that's why I think right. June 15 just came as a shock to everyone. And that's why it prompted this huge outpouring of sentiment in India. What about in the other direction? Uh, I, I imagine you must be tracking uh, Chinese popular attitude toward India in the aftermath of this. Uh, what's what's that looked like to you from where you sit? To me, it seems in, in a strange way, it seems muted compared to well, when I was in Beijing in 2017. And there was this big border standoff in this place called Doklam on the India-China-Bhutan trijunction. And at that point of time, Chinese state media was very vocal. There were online campaigns on Weibo that the People's Daily was popularizing. Um, Indian movies were stopped temporarily. Indian companies were not uh, were facing difficulties. In contrast, here it's been very silent in terms of official media in China. I think that uh, the People's Daily, PLA Daily didn't even report the next day when the clash happened, right. and there was loss. This is a PLA's first loss of uh, life in combat since uh, Vietnam, uh, since mid-80s, I think. So, and that's a big event as far as China is concerned, but there was no coverage of that. So it's been very silent in terms of Chinese official media, barring, of course, uh, the wonderful English language Global Times, which is publishing stuff every day. <laughs> uh, but it's been fairly quiet in terms of Chinese official media. On social media, there was a fair amount of attention on the loss of life and kind of speculating how many were lost on each side, this kind of very depraved, competitive tolling of, of, of deaths on each side. Uh, I think on social media, there was a little bit of both sides were using social media uh, in, in some way, the Indian military leaked a video uh, at one of the points showing Indian soldiers driving away a Chinese Humvee with sticks. Then the Chinese responded by leaking photos on Weibo showing Indian soldiers bound and tied up. So, uh, But then that kind of uh, went away after that initial exchange. But because both tried to kind of wage the social media war, there is more attention on Chinese social media than you would have thought uh, is the case because the rest of the media has actually been fairly muted about this. But what did get a lot of attention, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a bit, is India's economic measures such as banning TikTok and Chinese apps. That's been discussed a lot in the last few days in China. Yeah, let's get into that. First, I want to look at, at Modi's uh, foreign policy priorities right now. He's been touting this neighborhood first policy. Uh, what do things look like geostrategically just in the immediate neighborhood from the, the New Delhi perspective. Uh, India isn't having, well, you know, perennial problems, of course, with Pakistan, but also recently with Bangladesh and with Nepal, things haven't been so smooth. Uh, how does this all fit into to what's happening now with China? So, Kaiser, neighborhood first, I think, was the right approach. But quite frankly, six years on after his, after, since Modi took over, it's I think the neighborhood diplomacy has been the weakest of everything that his government has done. Uh, I think mm. that if you look at the June 15 clash in Galwan Valley, uh, I, I just I noticed that week that there was actually loss of life that same week on three different borders. There was a firing with Pakistan, an Indian soldier and, and other people died across the LOC. There was an incident with Nepal. India and Nepal are currently embroiled in a territorial dispute over an Indian map that Nepal is very angry about, and an Indian was shot by Nepali border guards. And in one week, to have three deaths on three different borders signaled something is really not right in your neighborhood approach. Um, I think that perhaps Bhutan and, and Sri Lanka are country, and Maldives to some extent, are countries where India has kind of showed up space that it lost to China, especially in Sri Lanka. Uh, but in Nepal, the situation isn't looking good. Relations are in a downward spiral with Pakistan. It's been fits and starts. Modi went from going to Nawaz Sharif's house on his birthday to surprise him to going to the other extreme by doing the airstrikes. Uh, so there's been no consistency and it's been very reactive. And I think you're seeing the consequences of that right now. Hmm. So both Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi have staked a lot of their legitimacy on their appeal as as nationalist leaders. Modi as somebody 
who tacitly, at least, and I think in the eyes of many observers, pretty explicitly, is, is pushing Hindutva, and she is pushing a vision that many critics would describe as ethno-nationalism. Uh, to what extent do you think that both Beijing and New Delhi have been have had to contend with nationalistic populations at home who've gotten maybe more bellicose than the leadership itself. I mean, what, what do you imagine the calculus is that they have to make on this? Because, I mean, I can easily imagine a scenario where, where Beijing and New Delhi both derive some political advantage from keeping this border dispute alive, keeping it, you know, at a low level of burn, but keeping it within bounds. I think it's a tricky task. And the funny thing was that when Xi took over um, in, in 2012, 2013, and then Modi won the election in 2014, the funny thing was the conventional wisdom that that we were hearing from officials in Beijing and Delhi, as well as you really finally have the chance to do something big with this relationship because you have guys who are strong nationalistic leaders. so They could actually sell things to make headways on things like the boundary dispute because of the fact that they have that reputation, kind of like the, the right. Nixon-China logic. But then it, it's turned out to be the opposite, where I think they've, looking at the recent events, they've been constrained by that very same fact. And I think for if I look at the reaction in India now, uh, the opposition political parties in India have made the current boundary situation a huge domestic issue. Uh, so Modi's principal challenger, Rahul Gandhi, is tweeting every day about the boundary. He's accusing him of being soft on China. Uh, and so it's becoming a domestic political issue. And I think in a way that's troubling, only because so Indian foreign policy hasn't really been so uh, sort of entangled in domestic politics before. But right now, it, it's become such a big issue. And there are elections coming up, state-level elections coming up that I think there's no question it will constrain the government's uh, decision-making. Ultimately, uh, military officials and former military officials I speak to say that the only way this can be resolved without further bloodshed is if both sides give up something. And that cannot be done with the public glare. It has to be done hush-hush. So which is why an optimistic scenario would be the standoff continues for long enough to the publics to move on to other things and for sentiment to dissipate a bit, and then they can both have give and take. That would be an optimistic appraisal of how they would deal with this issue of sentiment. But I think the the worst case scenario is that, as you said, if both feel that they're deriving something out of this when they deal with other domestic problems, India is dealing with a collapsing economy, a jobs crisis, a pandemic that is out of control, China, uh, you and I probably know that the economy is suffering, uh, is facing huge challenges at home. Although Absolutely. there are no signs that uh, China is using the boundary with boundary problem with India as yet, because if they were, the official media would be all over the story, but, but they aren't. So there's no evidence to suggest China is kind of milking this boundary dispute as of yet. But I'm sure they're aware of sentiments, especially on social media, and I have no doubt that it will constrain decision-making and it will hinder uh, early resolution and early disengagement to the current standoffs. Well, one indicator that China might be willing to come to the table on this, or at least to, to try to deal with it in, in nonviolent ways, is that the state media has been, as you said, relatively quiet on, on this issue. Um, do, you, do you see any hope there? I think that uh, certainly that it's much better that they are being quiet about it than, uh, than what we saw in Doklam, where it was very clear that they had this red line, which was India had to withdraw, and they wouldn't budge until that happened. Uh, so yeah. I think that, uh, in a way, I think it's much better off that the People's Daily isn't weighing in about the boundary situation as of yet. But I think that uh, it's what's going to be very difficult is that in the past, we always had standoffs in one location. So it was kind of easy to have give and take. But right now you're looking at five, six different spots spread across hundreds of kilometers. And India has publicly said that it won't settle for anything less than status quo before all the standoffs began. And I find it extremely difficult to imagine China having invested so much in bringing troops to five spots, including building what are signs of semi-permanent infrastructure in gray zones in at least one of those spots. 
I would find it very difficult to imagine China just kind of upping and running and taking down everything they've built in the last two months. So I find, I, so I, so I think it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. And I think it could go on for a long time. And my biggest worry is what happened on June 15th could repeat. Because if you remember, the June 15th clash happened after they agreed to disengage on June 6th. And it erupted because of a face-off in the process of disengaging and in the process of both sides re, uh, having different interpretations of how to disengage. So I think the potential for further incidents is really high. That's what really leaves me very concerned. Are you uh, privy to the level of communication happening between actual commanders on the border right now? So it is happening at a fairly high level and at the highest level, it has happened on the border, I think, in a long time. They've had three rounds of talks between core commanders, which is for India, uh, the head of the 14th Corps, which is in charge of this area, and China, the head of the South Xinjiang military district. So they're fairly senior officers on both sides. And I think they've met three times. And I think the last meeting that they had this week went on from 11 a.m. till midnight. Uh, and wow. clearly they are talking. But in, so what happened with the previous two meetings was when the agreements that they reached at the higher level were translated by commanders on the ground, problems cropped up. Uh, and I, and I'm sure that they, I think, frankly, neither side expected violence to happen on June 15th. I think that it just right. snowballed out of control. It was an, a situation that neither wanted. And I think an optimistic reading would be that both sides are so shocked by the events of June 15th that they will go out of the way to ensure that doesn't repeat. At least that is my hope. So in, in a piece that you wrote about the conflict, you quoted a Chinese scholar who said, China's experience indicates that resolving border disputes is usually the result rather than the cause of improvement in relations. But India insists that its relations with China won't improve fundamentally until the border dispute is resolved. Uh, do you think that this accurately captures the positions of, of the two sides? And, and what are the implications if that is indeed accurate? Yeah, I just love that uh, quote, which was from uh, Professor Zhang Jiadong at Fudan University, who was one of the South Asia hands in China. And I thought that he summed up something that I I've been wrestling with for so many years as to why does this damn boundary dispute never get resolved? And I think he really uh, really summed it up in a nutshell, and I think he hit the nail on the head, that both have completely different expectations of what the boundary dispute means to the larger relationship. I think uh, I'm of the view, which I think is common in India, that the idea that you can separate the boundary from everything else, which is what Deng Xiaoping and Rajiv Gandhi uh, made the, the founding principle of normalization, I think that's kind of run its course and and mm. the boundary is impinging on various other aspects of the relationship, as we've seen with the bans on Chinese apps. So I think there is a case to be made that the the relationship will be forever bound by this unresolved question, and it can never go beyond a certain point if both leave this unsettled. And I think the recent events have underlined that. But the big problem is, I think, in the Chinese view, the boundary is leverage because they enjoy superiority in many ways in many pockets along the boundary. And I think the predominant view in China, which they won't say outright, is that they see it as very useful leverage to keep India busy, to keep India off guard. And I think they feel if we settle this, we're going to be cashing this check and we could never ever get anything out of it. For example, what would China want to get out of it? They would want India to be restrained in relations with the United States. But that's something that India can't guarantee in perpetuity. India can settle right. the boundary and then India is free to do what it wants with any of its relationships. So I think the mentality in China that this is leverage is something that's very deeply ingrained, which is why I remain very skeptical about uh, a solution towards a dispute. But, but surely there are people in Beijing who recognize that in not addressing the boundary issue right now, they are effectively driving India into the arms, deeper into the arms of the quad of, of its U.S. allies. I mean, ever since the nuclear agreement, uh, there has been this this real deep sense that uh, India has now been enlisted in this, uh, you know, uh, new eight nations army, this encirclement of China, right? Surely there, are, there must be Chinese analysts who are making that case. I think that has been a persistent concern uh, from Chinese analysts. 
uh, that they're driving um, India into America's hands. But one interesting, I think, sort of evolution of that concern, which I'm seeing articulated a lot in, in Chinese pieces, is that they're saying don't try and exploit this concern of ours. So there's pushback to this concern. Uh, there's actually pushback to this articulation of concern by many Chinese experts that, you know, we're driving India into America's hands. So now you have a whole bunch of Chinese analysts saying, listen, don't fall for that stuff because they are exploiting it. Uh, so I think it's uh. very, so it's a very interesting kind of tension that you see in Chinese arguments about where to place India. Is India still a swing state? I think there's a growing view of thought among Chinese analysts that the ship has sailed and recent developments, especially under Modi and Trump, suggest that India is not a U.S. ally, but is gravitating towards being a U.S. ally. So I think I'm seeing a little bit a gradual evolution of, you know, from this concern of, you know, driving India to American hands. And I think now the even greater concern is India exploiting the Chinese fear. I think that's playing right. out in, in a lot of uh, writings that I hear uh, in Beijing. Hmm. And what about from the Delhi perspective? I mean, what do you hear? What's the scuttlebutt in within uh, the foreign ministry there? Are they seriously talking about, uh, you know, are they, in fact, as the Chinese, this new line of Chinese analysis suggests, are they trying to exploit this Chinese sphere by more openly courting, you know, this bromance between Modi and Trump has been going on for a while, but uh, are they are they exploiting this? I think the view in Delhi is that, uh, at least for the last four or five years, this is not something very new, uh, is that India perhaps was too cautious in pursuing other relationships out of deference to China. But in return, what India got was looking at an ever-deepening China-Pakistan relationship, uh, China propping Pakistan up, so India's argument is, well, if you can do things with Pakistan, including stationing your troops on Pakistan-occupied Kashmir or in that border and building projects on land that India claims, what are we getting out of, you know, being so cautious and pursuing these other relationships? So I think that is definitely one line of thinking in Delhi. But at the same time, I wouldn't misread that into thinking that India wants to become a U.S. ally. I think there's a very strong thought in India of being what they call strategic autonomy. And I think that people in the U.S. should also note that where where India's defense minister went, the first big visit after the, the Chinese clash happened was to Moscow and to and to get even more arms from, from Russia. And Russia is such an important supplier of, of, of arms and a whole range of things for India. I don't think that's going to change. So I think that... Right. So, I think that the Chinese fears of India becoming a U.S. ally are misplaced. But at the same time, I think there is this very delicate dance where India feels it can be doing more. And that's why it's scaling up things like the Quad. And the basic thinking in Delhi is we should stop being so deferential to Chinese sensitivities when we're getting none of that in return. Indeed. Let's move to something we flicked at a couple of times already uh, about what's happening in the online world. An Indian developer released an app that actually deletes Chinese-made smartphone apps off of your device. And apparently that picked up some popularity before Delhi actually announced a complete ban on Chinese-developed apps, as I said, including TikTok. Uh, this is something you've been looking into quite a bit. How is this being received so far popularly in, in India? Is there a pushback? Are, are people upset or are they enthusiastic? So I think uh, it was broadly, from what I'm seeing online and in the press, people have been broadly supportive of the move uh, only because I think there were long persisting concerns, not related to the boundary, but on things like data security and privacy. But of all the 59 apps, I think I think TikTok was one that was the most widely used. And I'm sure there are people who are disappointed because, frankly, in India, it also became, a, became an avenue for creativity. There were videos coming in from, the, from rural areas, from remote villages. Uh, there were people becoming like, well, I mean, what they call influencers and the like. Uh, but um, so I think TikTok was really a rage in India, and I'm sure that people, there are people are dis who are disappointed. But among the other 58 apps, a lot of them are things like, you know, file sharing apps, which you can really, I mean, you aren't really going to, they're not really indispensable. I think people have broadly been supportive uh, of that move to ban the apps. But then at the same time, I think that the way I saw it, 
perhaps India did the right thing for the wrong reasons because there are, I think, cases to be made where data security and users' data weren't really being protected. But the way to go about it would have been, I don't think a country-specific approach is the right one. And I think that there are issues of regulation that all apps have. And I think that by going after country-specific regulation, I think is a slippery slope. Uh, right now, it started with the apps, but it's, it is coming to other areas as well. I think this week we had two uh, Indian ministers, the Minister for Road Transport and the Power Minister, both saying they will exclude Chinese companies from road projects in India and from selling power equipment to India. And that's a big market. I think China sells $3 billion worth of power equipment to India every year. So I think it's becoming a much broader range of economic measures tied to the current boundary situation. But I think that these would, I don't know if they're going to be long lasting. If the boundary situation doesn't escalate and gets resolved, I think it's a high likelihood that you may go back to the trade and investment relationship that we saw in some areas. But at the same time, I think even if the boundary situation gets resolved, there will be some long lasting impacts. One I can think of is, for example, in 5G. I think it would be very difficult for the Indian government to continue allowing Chinese firms to take part in the rollout of the network. Uh, Chinese firms are currently participating in 5G trials in India. But I think after what happened in the boundary, this is one immediate impact we are likely to see is a decision uh, keeping Chinese companies out of the rollout of 5G, which is going to be a, a huge loss to Huawei, uh, given that India is one of their big overseas markets. Right, right, right. You know, it's, there's an irony, of course, in, in the fact that China is, is complaining bitterly over this app ban, uh, when, of course, it exercises its own so-called internet sovereignty to block a lot of foreign developed apps for national security reasons, ostensibly. But, uh, usually people immediately say, no, this is a form of protectionism. Do you think there's some protectionist thinking, uh, in, in this app ban as well? This is sort of, giving Indian app developers a chance to fill in the market vacuum that's been left by by the ban? I think that could be the hope because uh, the new phrase of choice for uh, Prime Minister Modi is, is called self-reliant India is his current phrase of choice, uh, which some economists in India are worried is, is just a way of saying we're going to be protectionist. And that's why they withdrew, for example, from the RCEP uh, trade negotiations as well. Right. Uh, but I think the app ban... Um, if they really were motivated by wanting to support Indian companies or wanting to uh, protect data as they have claimed, they wouldn't have waited for TikTok to get 300 million users in India. Uh, the fact that they did it in the middle of the boundary uh, conflict to me suggests it is plain and simple signaling to China saying that if you are going to continue occupying these territories, it cannot be business as usual. So I think India is going to try with as many economic levers as it can, while the current standoff situation continues. And where did this directive come from? Where in the Indian government did this uh, app ban actually originate? On the face of it, it came from the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology. But I'm sure that this must have been taken with uh, in consensus with the Prime Minister's Office and the Ministry of External yeah. Affairs. As I'm pretty sure this is a China policy decision rather than a technology decision because it seems to be informed by the dynamics of the China relationship more than the concerns that... In fact, I did argue in, in, in this paper that I wrote for Brookings about Chinese investments in India that policy hasn't kept pace with some of the investments we've been seeing from China and the acquisitions of stakes in Indian companies. But the point that I was making was not from a nationalistic proving a point to China argument, but more of protecting privacy and protecting data argument, which I don't think really is figured uh, high on the list of priorities for the government in making this decision. Right, right, right. Um, we've talked about a couple of scenarios for how this might play out in, in the coming months and, and even years. Um, maybe you can just sort of walk us through explicitly uh, what you think some of the more likely uh, outcomes are going to be, so how this might you know, sort of pan out in just the near term. I think there are different scenarios and that would all depend on how things unfold on the ground in the next few weeks and months. Uh, I think if there's another event such as the terrible event of June 15th, I think really would this relationship is already on a knife's edge and it would really push things uh, past the point of no return. I think if there is a kinetic conflict 
in the border, which is possible. And the very fact that I'm saying that it's possible you could have a military conflict on the border kind of gives you an idea of how the relationship is. Right. I, I'm, I'm not confident enough to rule it out. I think it is, it's still possible that there could be a limited conflict on the border. Uh, I think if that happens again, this relationship is just going to be, this is going to be as significant as 1988 and the normalization of relationship. I think it will never go back to what it was if things are going to escalate on the border and if there's going to be a military conflict. If things disengage and we go back to how things were two months ago, I think that large parts of the relationship could perhaps return to where they were in terms of, for example, some aspects of trade and investment. Um, but at the same time, I think there would be repercussions, uh, especially because I think the public opinion impact will be long lasting just for the fact that uh, it was such a perfect storm in the middle of a pandemic, which happened to be related to China. You had a loss of life, uh, which was a shock after 53 years. I think there's such a huge uh, sort of uh, inflection point, it seems to me, uh, that I think there will be long-lasting effects, even if we resolve this in a peaceful way. And I think India will look at China differently, uh, for example, in things like doing things together on telecom or cooperating with China on projects in third countries, which was something they were working on. I think these kind of more ambitious areas of cooperation are very, very unlikely to happen. And for me, that's the best case scenario. So, um, so yeah, so I think that things aren't looking very bright. Whereas a kinetic shooting incident would be, and an escalation from there would be, it's not something you can rule out right now. My God, uh, I can't believe we're here right now. Anand Krishnan, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, let's move on to recommendations right now. But first, uh, a couple of things. First, tell people where, where they can find you on Twitter. What's your, your Twitter handle? Right, uh, Kaiser, my Twitter handle is my first name and last name. That's at Anant Krishnan, A-N-A-N-T-H-K-R-I-S-H-N-A-N. That's a simple and short enough name for everyone. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an easy one. <laughs> Uh, let's, let's, uh, move on to recommendations. First, I want to tell listeners, uh, about how they can help out our podcast. Dear Seneca podcast listeners and fans, we were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys. And I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, we are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today, SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please, don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions, but we have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com and help us out. Thank you so much. Okay, on to recommendations. Anat, why don't you go first? What do you have for us? So I think for a lot of listeners who might be interested in learning more about the India-China boundary situation, uh, I think that I, there are a couple of books I would highly recommend just to give you a sense of what exactly all of this is about. And I would start with a book called Choices, Inside the Making of India's Foreign Policy. That's by mm. Shiv Shankar Menon, who's a former Indian NSA, who also helped negotiate many of the border agreements. And if you're trying to understand what is the LAC, 
what is the difference between an LAC claim and territorial claims, uh, and how India and China have managed this, this dispute without settling it peacefully for so many years. I would uh, strongly recommend his book just to make sense of what's happening on the boundary right now. Choices. Great, great. Uh, I actually have a recommendation related to, to the show as well. It's a newsletter that's written by a guy named Suyash Desai called the Takshashila PLA Insight. Uh, I found it to be really, really good just on nitty gritty detail. I mean, he, he really gets into a lot of detail about, uh, what's happening on the border. That uh, again is called the Takshashila PLA Insight by Suyash Desai. I'll have that in the link in case you can't guess at the spelling. Uh, my other recommendation, just a lot more frivolous, but also, you know, about, about, about worlds teetering on the brink of conflict, uh, is a sci-fi show. It's a, it's a space opera, uh, called The Expanse. It's sort of what they call hard sci-fi. In other words, it, 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 you know, takes the science more or less into account. Uh, it's set a few hundred years into our future where there's this sort of burgeoning conflict between Earth, Mars, and sort of a three kingdom situation with this outer planets alliance of these, uh, quite put upon asteroid belt miners and people on the moons of the outer planets. Anyway, it's, it's really good. I, I had had it recommended to me years ago and never thought to sort of follow up. I'm usually not a big sci-fi guy, but this, this is really compelling stuff. It's on Amazon Prime. So I've seen two seasons of it now and I'm, I'm pretty eager to dig in for more. Have you seen that show? I have another sci-fi recommendation, which is not, I will look up yours as a fan, but I would recommend, uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners may have watched The Mandalorian, but what I would recommend is for them to sit through the eight episode documentary on the making of The Mandalorian, which I just finished. And, uh, oh, wow. which was, uh, which was absolutely fantastic for anyone who's interested in, in this. Yeah. I mean, hey, it's got baby Yoda. Who can you say? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Now, Mandalorian's been a lot of fun. I haven't finished it yet, but uh, I was, I was, I keep getting distracted by other shows, but yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, great recommendations. Enough, man, it was really great to catch up and, and thank you so much. I mean, it's amazing how much I don't know about this situation. <laughs> really a pleasure to talk to you and hope to have, uh, to have another, uh, drink in Beijing sometime soon. Hopefully when both of us we'll find do a way it. to get back there. Yeah. Congratulations on getting back there. I, I'm sure you guys can't wait. Thanks so much, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, hey, hey.